What's up, everyone? So we are revisiting a very popular topic. I very early on in the podcast did an episode about what we're going to talk about today. But here's the thing. It's such a recurring theme, especially for new investors, that I felt like, you know what, we can do another episode on this and really kind of get nitty gritty about the specifics in regarding your lease. Whenever I go on to bigger pockets or even real estate forums like on Facebook, I almost once a week at least have one person who's posting about looking for lease information, what clauses you should have in there, what type of documents you should have in there. So I feel like this is a really good thing to refresh on every once in a while. Now, of course, this could be a really interesting discussion if I went very state specific with it. But I'm not going to because obviously we all invest in different states. Even though I'm based in Wisconsin, many of you listening aren't necessarily based in Wisconsin, nor do you invest in Wisconsin. But I know there's others of you that do do investing in Wisconsin and things like that. So, But this podcast is really going to be about surface level detail about it. But we're going to get in depth as far as what might be universal across all 50 states. So let's dive into a deep dive on leases. So the first thing I want to talk about is let's get some ground rules in place for the rest of this podcast. So number one, when I say lease, I'm talking about the rental agreement and all of its supporting documents. So the very top page of a lease is usually referred to as a rental agreement. This is where you specify how much rent the tenant is paying, what the security deposit is, who the landlord is. It's really kind of the bulk of the information, and it's the top sheet that most judges are concerned about if you wind up in court in front of them. So we have the rental agreement, which is a part of the lease. The lease is the rental agreement along with all of its other addendums, its other forms, everything that you have piled into it. So as we're going through this and I'm saying the word lease versus rental agreement, I want to be sure we're all understanding which one I'm specifically referencing. The other thing I do want to point out is that what we might call a document here in Wisconsin or what you might generally call it here, either because of what state statutes say or what the colloquial term is, might not necessarily apply to your state. With that being said, also understand that anything I say in here, I want you to just double check with some very good local experts in your area if you aren't in Wisconsin, or even maybe get the ear of an attorney for like 20, 25 minutes just to kind of review some stuff if you have any questions about what I'm talking about in here. But I want to be sure that you all know that I'm not necessarily advocating this is this is how you set up your lease in every single state. I want you to do a little bit of extra research and make sure you're setting it up properly for your state. But there's definitely going to be best practices stuff in here. There's going to be stuff that's applicable to you. So regardless of where you are, this is going to be an awesome episode. So now that those housekeeping items are out of the way, let's just dive into this discussion on creating your leases. Now, one of the biggest mistakes I see people making is assuming that just having a rental agreement is enough. They say, okay, does anyone know where I can find a lease or a rental agreement? And they're referring to that top sheet that I just had the explanation about a minute ago. And they think that is a sufficient lease. Here's the issue with that. 
It's not. <laughs> Regardless of what state you're in, there's likely at least one, if not two documents that you are missing. See, a lease really, as I said in the earlier, refers to all the pieces that are required or that you want in your lease. Beyond the rental agreement, there are some documents that may be required by your state, or there may even be documents that are required by federal government. Now, most cases, the only time you have the federal government mandating a form in a lease is when you have lead-based paint in the property. But another very, very common, and I want to say nearly every state has a form for this, is a smoke detector and carbon monoxide detector agreement or whatever it's worded like in your state. So beyond having a rental agreement, you're likely going to have at least one more attached document, which is the smoke and carbon monoxide detector agreement. And then depending on the age of the property, you're going to have a lead-based paint agreement. So when we go on forms, we see people looking for a rental agreement. I always like to chime in and say, hey, it's not just about the rental agreement. The lease isn't just, you know, the standard thing where you're talking about the rent, everything like that. You need to make sure that you're getting these other forms if they're applicable to you and also consulting your state statutes for what other other forms you might need. Now, with the rental agreement, this is the top sheet. This is really sort of the bones of the entire rental agreement. Because this is where you're lining out who the landlord is, how they can mail stuff to you, how they can contact you. You're also listing who they can have for service, so process service. You're giving them an address and a name of somebody who's willing to accept service on your behalf or where they can serve you personally. You're listing the legal names of the tenants. You're also likely including the names of minor occupants. This is one of those best practices that I recommend. However, I know it's sometimes difficult in execution, especially if someone's lived with you for more than one lease term. So maybe they've lived with you for three years, you know they've had a child or two. You might not necessarily have that information. But when you first start out renting to the person, you should be able to get this information off of your application. You should have a line on there that asks for the name of minor children. Now, I used to manage for a landlord who actually kept track of birth dates for the minor children so that when they turned 18, they would have to be an actual signature on the lease as a regular adult occupant. I've never gone to that extreme that is something you can totally choose to do on your own. I just don't really see much of the point in that because as long as they're listed as additional occupants or even still minors, I don't think it's too much of an issue. The other thing that the lease is going to talk about is it's going to give them what their rent currently is for the unit. And it should also specify what's included in that. Now, in this part of the inclusions, I'm not talking about the utilities. What I'm talking about here is, is there a garage? Is there a washer dryer that's included? A dishwasher? A fridge and stove, if you get like a boilerplate lease from some company in your state, which is what I highly recommend, it likely already lists refrigerator and stove, but there's probably going to be a line for adding additional appliances or amenities. 
So going sort of more ritzy with this, maybe the unit includes like a like a whirlpool tub on the back deck. Maybe it includes um, I don't know what, but anything that is included beyond utilities or that you provided should be listed near the rent as being included in parts of the rent. Another thing that you're going to lay out on the top sheet of the rental agreement is you're going to actually give them when the lease starts and what its duration is. Is it month to month? Is it a year? Is it six months? If it's anything other than month to month, you want to be putting in there specifically the date that the lease expires at midnight of that day or yeah, well, 11.59, technically, 11.59 of May 31st, this lease expires. Next thing in your rental agreement is you're going to cover the utility spread. So who is paying for what as far as water, trash, sewer, electricity, gas, uh, some of the forms that are out there that are made by companies or by attorneys, sometimes they list like air conditioner, who's paying for the air conditioning, who's paying for the, uh, to heat the hot water. You know, those are kind of nuanced things that may or may not be on your form. Just kind of adopt it or adapt it as you have to. Then another thing that's included in the lease is going to be the security deposit that they paid to you. <laughs> it should be paid in full when they move in. If it's not paid in full, I'm sorry, you shouldn't be moving them in. But anyway, you're going to tell them what the security deposit is, and it's going to specify where that money is being held. Is it being held by you, which it likely is if you're self-managing? And where is it being held? Are you holding it in a savings account? Are you holding it in a checking account? Now, let me say this. Again, consult your state statutes. There are states out there that require that security deposits be held in a savings account. There are states that then say that that earnest or that interest that you earn is due to the tenant. There are states that say that interest goes to the state government. So check your state statutes in regards to that. A lot of the other stuff that you find in leases is going to be kind of your boilerplate language. You're going to want to include some provisions in there that cover whether or not pets are permitted in the unit. I use a form where that is an easily strikeable field, which means I say pets are or not, and then I strike out what is not applicable. And then I do have an additional paper for pets, which we will go over. But then we get to more boilerplate language. It's a good thing to include the idea that any promises to repair, meaning that if they move in and there's stuff that they find wrong, that promises to repair need to be submitted in writing and so on and so forth. You want to be sure and include in the lease how you are required to process security deposits. Now this comes from your state. So what I mean by that is have some language in there that explains what the security deposit cycle is, which means how many days you have to return the security deposit and its accounting according to your state statutes. Get into there the definition of reasonable wear and tear by your state that might have a precedent set by court action or it might actually be spelled out in your state statute sometimes. You'll want to include in your 
in your lease under the security deposit area that a tenant cannot use their security deposit as payment of the last month's rent. That's a very good thing to have in there. It's a very good thing to just make sure tenants understand. I explain that to them when I first have the conversation to them about moving out. I don't necessarily highlight it when they're moving in, but when we have a conversation about them moving out, I'm reminding them that, hey, per your lease on line 64, you cannot use your security deposit as your last month's rent. Some other boilerplate language that you want to have in there is basically that the use of the premises is for the purposes of living in it and that they shouldn't be engaging in illegal activity. They shouldn't be subletting. They should not be running an Airbnb out of it uh, and that they shouldn't be engaging in activities which disturb neighbors or tenants. You do want to have in there a provision that says that they are responsible for the actions of their guests. So whether they be staying for 10 minutes or three days, that they are responsible for what happens as an action of their guests, meaning if their guests cause damage in the property or in the building, that tenant on the lease is responsible for it. And that guest can be held to the same standards as far as noise and other things. So it's important to include that. Another good section to have is a section on maintenance, which can specify any maintenance that you want the tenant to be responsible for. This can include lawn care and snow removal. It can also, you should also stipulate in there if they're required to change out standard light bulbs, if they're required to change out the batteries themselves on the smoke detector. Sort of those small repair items, if those are ones that you're choosing to put on the tenant, they should be explained in the lease. Another thing you want in your lease, and this actually has to be covered in another document as well in Wisconsin, but you want to be sure and cover entry by landlord in the rental agreement. So this is the section that gives you permission to enter in emergency situations, but also explains what your state statute requires for notification. So here in Wisconsin, this section actually says that the landlord may enter the premises with reasonable, at reasonable times upon advance notice to the tenant with no less than 12 hours notice to make standard repairs, show the premises, arrange for contractors, conduct inspections, and it says, etc. Then it also talks about in there how Usually, the manner will be written. However, sometimes it will be a phone call. For me, it's always written. This is boilerplate language from a state form that I use. But there, it actually says the two ways that you might be contacted. Written, obviously, nowadays would equate to email. It's not necessarily like snail mail. Another good section to have in here is a section regarding a regarding the mitigation. So mitigation is a big word, basically. And what it means is that if the tenant abandons the premises before the end of the rental agreement, or if it's terminated because there's a breach of contract on the part of the tenant, then the tenant remains liable for any uh, deficiency in rent collection or things like that. So basically what this is saying is 
you know, if you move out before your lease ends, you could be on the hook for the remainder of your lease or as long as it takes me to get it re-rented. So mitigation cost or, or a mitigation clause, I think is really important. Again, I would check your state statutes just to be sure there isn't a limit on mitigation. You could live in a state. I don't know if these exist, but maybe you don't have for the duration of the lease, but you have up to two months or three months. So check your state statutes before you create your own mitigation clause. Another one that I encourage you to have in there if it's possible is one about abandonment in, in regards to personal property. So an abandonment clause is going to be separate. It's going to basically say that if the tenant is absent without communication to you or there's no rent paid for at least two weeks, two weeks, three weeks, whatever you pick, it is possible that you may consider the unit abandoned. So in this case, you basically be saying, hey, if you don't tell me that you're not going to be at the premises for more than two weeks and, I, and, and you go dark on me, you don't respond to anything, I'm going to assume that you've abandoned the premises and that it's mine again. So if someone goes on like a three-week cruise to the Bahamas or wherever, you want to be sure your tenants are notifying you just in case you plan on using that abandonment clause. Now, here's the thing. Nine times out of ten... I'm not using the abandonment clause when it comes to suspicions of whether they've skipped or not. Really what I'm doing is I'm seeing if rent is paid. If it's not paid and they don't respond to any of my communication, after like the seventh or eighth day, I'm going to make an effort to see if they're still occupying the unit by driving by it, posting for an inspection, posting for a silly repair. I'm going to do something that's going to get me in there and actually see if they've abandoned the premises or not. Then the other one is in regards to personal property. Again, check your state statutes, but here in Wisconsin, now since like 2016, I think it was, we've been able to throw out any personal property that is left behind by the tenant when they surrender keys to us or if the, or if the tenant abandons the premises. So going back to the previous one, we can then throw away anything, but we have to have it in our lease. So check your state statute, see what it says about personal property, and see if you can include this clause in here. Another good section to have is that the tenant cannot assign the lease. This would cover Airbnb. It would also cover subletting, but it's good to have that out in a separate clause in your, in your rental agreement. Uh, it's also good to include... Just that in general, if the property is sold, that this rental agreement, the lease and everything survive the sale of the property. Uh, then the next one you want to have in there is just some sort of boilerplate language in regards to electronic communication. So you want to have in your rental agreement that they are signing off on electronic communication of email. So something that says that we are within our rights to email you regarding issues with your account. We're within our right to email you to give you notice for entry of a repair. And depending on what your state statutes say, maybe you can issue security deposit accounting that way. Obviously, you still have to mail a check, but you can save yourself like two sheets of paper by emailing the accounting of it. Uh, and just be sure you have that in there so you can save yourself some paper and obviously have some convenience there. 
Now, you might not be drafting your own lease. You might be purchasing it from a company within your state or maybe an attorney is drafting it. In the event that you are buying a lease, and I'm hoping it is state-specific and from a reputable organization within your state, if you're buying something that's pre-built and some of these things weren't covered and you'd like to have them covered, don't worry. We can cover those in the rules and regulations, which is another form that I have attached to my rental agreement. Now, I do recommend that any rental agreement that you have, you have some lines for special provisions These come in handy when you might do any sort of like incentive. So if you give $200 off the first month's rent, uh, it's also good for those weird special circumstances that might exist for one tenant, but not every tenant. Uh, So it's really good to have a couple lines for special provisions. I recommend, you know, four to five so you can just easily write in, type in whatever it is you need to include as part of the special provisions. Another section that I really encourage you to have on your rental agreement, or at least somewhere, even if you have to make up your own form for this, is what's called an attachment or addendum incorporated section. So this is where you would list the documents that are incorporated into the rental agreement, thus making it the whole lease. So it's your rules and regulations, it's your smoke and carbon monoxide detector form we talked about. for us here in Wisconsin, it's going to include the non-standard rental provisions that we have to include. Uh, depending on the age of the property, it's going to be the lead-based paint. But it's a good idea to have a section like that in your lease, either on your rental agreement or a separate form that says, hey, these are all the forms that were given to the tenant and are incorporated into this lease. Then obviously you're going to have signature lines for yourself and then the signature lines for adult tenants as well. So that was a lot of information on the rental agreement, but now let's get into some of the other forms. So one of the first ones that I like to talk about is the rules and regulations. This is a form that you're gonna use to specify specific rules that you have for your properties or maybe a specific property. So rules and regulations, you know, in my rules and regulations, I cover a lot of different things, and I mean a lot. I cover in here pets, trash. Uh, I cover regards to noise violations and the strike system, meaning tenants have three strikes and then they're out. Uh, I cover a lot of things in here that are things I want to keep control of but aren't necessarily included on the rental agreement. So if I'm briefly kind of running through this with you, My rental agreement, one of the first things I talk about is the late fee. So the late fee for me is listed on the rules and regulations. And it just basically says that the late fee is this amount and that it's charged on this day. Then number two, what I'm doing is I'm talking about pets. So this section, I cover what I want people to know about pets, even if they're not moving in with a pet. So mine says, unless a pet addendum is included in the attachment list on line 179 and the rental agreement is stricken as such, a tenant does not, is not allowed to have a pet. If it is a no pet property, this means you cannot have any pets, the only exception being fish tanks. Then paragraph two of it, 
says that if pets are permitted at this property, and then it goes into the restrictions that I have on pets, but it also includes what the rent would be for a pet if they choose to get one. And I'm putting this in here so that anyone who moves into my property knows, regardless of whether they have a pet, if it's a pet-friendly property, this is what my rules are regarding pets. Number three in mine goes into excessive noise. It gets into quiet hours. Uh, number four is sort of just a silly little thing that I include, but it's one of those things that I feel like I should include. It's no illegal substance use or distribution at the property. Number five talks about if clothes washers, dryers, or dishwashers are included or are installed in the property, they should not be left when the tenants are not home. They shouldn't be left running when the tenants are not home. And then I go into specifically what they should do with washer and dryers if they happen to have them provided. Number six, bans vehicle work to be done on the premises except for changing a flat tire or jumping a car battery. I don't want people doing oil changes or any sort of big repairs in, in my driveways, mostly because it opens you up to the city ticketing it, you possibly getting intertwined into a non-moving vehicle situation. So I prefer to avoid that entirely. Then I have a clause which talks about not grilling on the uh, wood decks and also grilling like I think I have 15 feet away from the building just one of those good things to have in there and, and then I do cover you know trash where it's put is it there responsible to take the trash bins to the curb I don't have in there what day of the week trash or recycling is because that varies by property so that's way too intensive for me to have because I would have like eight, nine, 12 different rules and regulations. Uh, then I talk about how they shouldn't put foreign objects down toilets or down drains. This includes feminine products, grease, toys, glass. Uh, you know, if they shaved Bigfoot in their bathroom, please don't put that down the tub drain, anything like that. And then I also get into what are some of the small maintenance items that I have tenants handle, but in the event that they don't want to, this is the cost for us to do it. Now, a little asterisk here. Uh, if you have a tenant who is elderly or disabled, you should not be charging them to do those standard things. I highly recommend that you do those things for them. Obviously, if it gets to be excessive, you could have a conversation with the tenant, but generally speaking, changing out light bulbs and changing out smoke detector batteries is going to be something that happens periodically. It's not going to be something they're going to be on you for all the time. And those are the things that I say the tenant can do and can be responsible for, but I don't hold the disabled and the elderly to it. Next, I cover that window ACs are not allowed in my units and that room air conditioners are fine. Then I get into saying that satellite dishes are not permitted. Then I get into what forms of payment I accept. Uh, so actually right now I'm in the process of transitioning strictly to online payments. Any new leases are only going to be online payments. There won't be any money orders. There won't be any checks. There won't be any cash. Exception to that would be when they first move in. But other than that, nope. 
Then what's really important for me in this state, based on how our statutes are written, I have a clause that gives an example of what it means to give proper notice. Because here in Wisconsin, it's a little confusing. It probably maybe is confusing in every state, but it gives a good example of what it means to properly give notice and what the calendar looks like for that. Then I have some miscellaneous things about bird feeders and about porches and limiting people on upper decks. Uh, one thing I encourage you to include is that if something happens to the refrigerator, you do not replace food items and you're not responsible for providing coolers, anything like that. And that repair and replacement for a refrigerator varies depending on part and product availability. That's a really, really important clause to have in there, I think, because tenants almost automatically assume you're going to pay for their food. And it's like, well, if we did that for everybody, if you did that for everybody, if you had 20, 20 units and you were paying for everybody's groceries and it's 150 bucks, that could be quite expensive. So then my rules and regulations are signed by both the tenant and the landlord or management and it's dated and that's the form that basically includes all of the miscellaneous rules that I want enforced on my properties. Whatever rules you think are applicable to your property, include them in your rules and regulations. I don't necessarily, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not a proponent of having a big long rental agreement. That's just my personal preference. I prefer to have a rules and regulations attached to it, even if I wasn't buying something pre pre-made, I would still have a rules and regulations form separate from my lease. That's just the way my mind thinks. If you're buying a pre-made lease, I highly encourage you to make a rules and regulations and have that be one of your first addendums that are incorporated into your lease. This episode is already reaching 30 minutes. So what we're going to do is we're going to continue with part two next week in regards to creating your own leases. Hope you guys learned something from this one. We're going to talk about a lot more of the potential documents and clauses that you want to have in your lease next week, but hope you guys found some information in here. Have a great week. I will see you next time.